Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Welcome back to SASPOD. We are starting the academic year 2022-23. Thank you all for joining us today. I am joined by Elizabeth Lost, who is the South Asia Digital Librarian working on the South Asia Open Archive at the Center for Research Libraries. Elizabeth has her PhD in the Departments of South Asian Languages and Civilizations and History at the University of Chicago. Uh, and many of you will know her as the organizer of Conversations on South Asia while she was a postdoctoral fellow at Dartmouth College. Elizabeth and I overlapped at the University of Wisconsin-Madison when she held an A.W. Mellon postdoctoral fellowship and was affiliated with the Center for the Humanities, the Undergraduate Legal Studies Program, and indeed the Center for South Asia. Elizabeth, I'm so excited to talk to you today about your new work. Thank you for yeah, joining us. How are you? I'm well, thanks. It's fantastic to be here. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. All right. So uh, we spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago, perhaps, and started kind of planning out the, the podcast because you had just taken up your job at the South Asia Open Archive and you were doing this uh, listening tour that I want to ask you more about. Uh, but it came up in our conversation that people really don't know very much about uh, what you so beautifully call SAWA, uh, S-A-O-A. So perhaps um, we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about the archive itself and then we can zoom in on your work. Yeah, sure. So the South Asia Open Archives Initiative, or what we lovingly call SAWA, um, started, I think it had its inception about seven years ago, late 2015, early 2016, when a group of librarians who had been working together on the South Asian Materials Program, which is a program housed at the Center for Research Libraries, started thinking about what they could do to make the resources that were already in their library's collections, collections that they've been building and developing for decades, what they could do to make those collections accessible to their own scholars and also to the scholars outside their institutions. And um, wanted to put together a project that would make these resources openly accessible and digitally accessible. And from those conversations that they had about how to make their collections and um, public domain resources related to South Asia openly accessible, the South Asia Open Archives Initiative was born. And so from that time, this has been a collaborative member-based project. We have a number of institutional memberships, I think amounting uh, to about 27 right now from across North America and South Asia who participate in the project um, by collaborating on working groups that help to steer and drive the activities of the South Asia Open Archives. 
and also by working with the collections that are in their own institutions to get those digitized and to make them accessible to folks. So right now, um, after the, the archive launched in 2019, um, it has now grown to be about 27,000 items or um, over 800,000 pages of content that's accessible to anyone with an internet connection around the world. All free, all open access, all available um, if you use the URL sawa, S-A-O-A dot C-R-L dot E-D-U. And you can search the collection by a number of terms, but it's a growing collection and it's one that um, folks have really made an effort to, to make open, accessible and um, available to people. It's 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 really incredible. And I'm so um, happy that you're on SASPOD so that people can hear more about it, because I found out in our conversation that Stanford uh, is indeed a member of SAWA and um, yay, that's wonderful. But I didn't know very much about it. Um, tell me more about the accessibility piece, because when you digitize something, I'm I'm imagining like a PDF, which is not searchable necessarily. So what are some of the logistics you're up against? Yeah, so the digitization process is, um, it is complicated, but the piece of the process that's the most complicated is probably this question of discoverability and accessibility yeah. that you're raising. Because, you know, all of us have, have gone to the archive and we've taken out our, our camera or our iPhone and we've taken a bunch of photos. And then after you come back from the archive, there's always this question of like sorting, naming, organizing, and then making use of those um, images for research or for teaching or for learning. And one of the things that Sawa does is it, um, so we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that our metadata is accessible and searchable to folks. So we have um, across a number of fields, but we partnered with um, Ithaca, a nonprofit that is also responsible for JSTOR to host the collection through their community collections program. Mm -hmm. And with that community collections program, um, Sawa's materials get text searchable capabilities, which works up to a point for some of the South Asian languages as well. So Bengali and some of the um, Urdu language content is actually text searchable, which helps people find stuff. Um, my favorite, favorite test is always to put in the word kanun and to search for it and you get a number of results from the Oligar Institute Gazette, if you search for a term like that. And then uh -huh. the Bali language material is also accessible. And those are the, the, the most well-represented South Asian languages that I've, um, I've tested so far. But partnering with, with Ithaca and with their open community collections platform gives us access to these types of search capabilities. And then we have in, um, in Sawa, all of the members are, um, librarians and subject area specialists who have been working with these questions of once you have a collection, how do you make it accessible to scholars? How do you make it discoverable in online catalogs? They've been working on these questions and these problems for decades, for their entire careers. And so they know some of the ways that you can um, create records that, that people can search. And one of the things, in fact, I just had a conversation with folks this morning, one of the things that Sawa is really trying to move forward is making our, our records searchable and available and presentable in in the original script as well as in transliteration so that people who might be more um, are looking for Tamil language materials and read Tamil, write in Tamil and want to look at the Tamil language materials that we have in our collection aren't trying to figure out what the transliteration scheme is but they can just read the Tamil script. 
And so Sawa is making efforts to um, to make things accessible that way. The, the platform that we're on also uses um, Google Translate. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to look at the web page in another language, you can select the language from the Google Translate options at the bottom of the page. And with, um, with languages like Urdu that are bi-directional, it does some weird things with numbers and dates, um, but it does translate a lot of the uh, materials if you're looking at um, uh, titles or subjects, all of those words will come up in Urdu. My head hurts just thinking about it. I mean, it's just like the 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 detail, uh, uh, and so um, because if you're okay, so let's talk about South Asia. There are um, obviously gazillion archives in South Asia, and so my first question would be, how would you get access to those archives to be able to digitize them? My follow-up question is about copyrights. Um, and then my third question on that is, how do people search in um, in Indian languages um, if, if they're using a, a QWERTY keyboard? Yeah, the, the keyboard question is one that that is complicated and really depends on what operating system they're on. Right. If they're on a mobile device, you know, you could switch the keyboard to a different language and searching that way works. But then there's always the question of how characters are encoded. Right. Ours are... Uh, we use Unicode, which is the standard, but that's not what everybody uses for their their search. So there are some limitations in those ways. The question of how we gain access to materials to digitize is really, I think, one of one of Sawa's strengths because we have a number of longstanding um, members and collaborators in South Asia who have rich, robust collections of these materials and have been working with us to digitize um, items from their collections. So one of our Partners is the Roja Mataya Research Library in Chennai. Um, they're currently working on a project to, to digitize a number of um, leftist journals in Tamil. And um, these are materials that would be considered still in copyright, but because they have connections to the community and to the, the Marxist party in Tamil Nadu, they are able to work with them to negotiate permission to include those materials in our open access, non-commercial, accessible archive. And so there's some cool stuff that is either already in Sawa or is about to be in Sawa's collection because um, the people who are involved in Sawa have been collaborating with partners and members in South Asia for decades. We also have a lot of um, Bengali language material that comes from the Center for um, Social Studies in Kolkata. And they also have a rich collection of materials that they, um, they're in, they've been working on to digitize both for preservation to make sure that stuff that is housed locally um, is preserved at least in a digital format if they can't preserve the physical objects as well, mm -hmm. but also have been working with the collections that they've been building um, to make those open access to scholars um, in the subcontinent and in North America and really throughout the world. Sure. Um, yeah, the accessibility piece is, is just wonderful. Is the is the final aim to have everything available to everyone? Is that kind of the ultimate dream? I think if we had the opportunity and we had the resources to digitize and make it all accessible, we would do that. There are certainly things that are still in copyright and some um, rights holders who would probably prefer to to retain those rights. Um, but a lot of people are willing to make materials accessible or available for non-commercial purposes, which is one of the, the benefits and the aims of, 
um, a project like Sawa that it has no commercial basis. So um, it allows us to, to do some of that good work that comes from digitizing and um, cataloging and archiving these materials in that way. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done before we get to everything being available, but that's definitely on the horizon or at least um, you know, making enough stuff available right. is the main goal right now. Um, to what extent do you think the pandemic has kind of encouraged people to think about digital accessibility? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about because there was definitely this project got started before the pandemic. But I think the pandemic has really made people realize that not everyone can travel, especially internationally, to go physically to collections. There are a lot of barriers that people face in terms of um, cost, whether it's flying from the U.S. to South Asia, whether it's flying from South Asia to the U.S. to access collections. There are a lot of barriers um, for people who have um, children and other care responsibilities in terms of the hours when archives are open. One of the potential Sawa users or imagined Sawa users that I like to think about is somebody who is in the subcontinent who might otherwise be able to go to the local archive to access some of these materials, but is not able to because the archive is open from 10 a.m. in the morning to 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and this person has a job and can't get to it, or this person has um, childcare responsibilities and can't get to it, or this person is otherwise limited in their ability to get to the archive. But in the evening, after the kids go to sleep or um, before dinner is served, they can go online and they can look at the collection and they can access some of these materials. So some of those barriers that you know will come back when people start returning to those archives, the question of who can who can leave home for months on end to spend three, four, five, six, 12 months just working in the archives um, is an equity question that I don't think uh, academics have really grappled with fully, but it's one that digital sources and digital projects can help to overcome because then more people have more access to materials and can do the primary source research that would otherwise be the domain of, of folks who have the privilege whether it's in terms of money or passport or um, just mobility to get sure. to those archives. Yeah, I love the the kind of democrat democratization of it. However, um, often when um uh, when people's privilege is undercut, there's some pushback. Are you are you finding that at all? Are people um suspicious of this? I haven't encountered any suspicion so far. Um, one of the questions that I've sort of been anticipating or um, thinking of as a possibility is one of the things that I would like to do is to make Sawa a platform so that scholars who are interested in material can either contribute to the digitization of those materials directly, whether it's through spending research funds or whether it's through applying for grants or things along those lines, um, whether if given the opportunity to make things open access immediately whether scholars would still be willing to pay for the digitization or whether there might be some people who are sort of like wait everybody would have access to the source that i'm interested in i don't know if i'm okay with that i want to have access to it first i haven't encountered this but i can imagine that there might be some instances in the future where people might have that reaction and they might say well i'll pay to make it open access but i get to use it first or something like that 
And that would go against the spirit of Sawa. Right. Um, but it raises questions about, you know, scholars are, are can be kind of proprietary when it comes to the sources they're working on. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, I remember spending many hours in very uh, kind of dark and sweaty archives in in, in Benares, um, looking at little book song booklets and, and whatever. And, um, you know, I was able to bring photocopies back. And if, if somebody said, oh, you know, we're just going to digitize those and put them on the web. Now I'd be like, great. But perhaps then having just been through the experience, uh, I might be like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, I, I, that, I don't know if I'm quite ready for that. Um, but I think that's just a mindset that we can change. And I think, you know, by really talking about Sao and all the great work it does and it will do in the future, you can just create a, an energy where everybody's going to be okay with it because they realize that the greater good is actually good for everyone. It's, yeah, I think it feels maybe better in the moment, but it's a very short moment. Yeah, there's definitely a sense among historians that if you have not like slogged away in the archives, you haven't done the work yeah. that would allow you then to publish the book or to produce the article or to sound like an expert because you haven't you haven't sat in the archives and you haven't spent time with the records. But I think, you know, across the board, people are embracing digital sources as primary sources, I think they recognize that the rate at which we can digitize things is a lot faster than people can read things. So the chances that somebody that, you know, everybody has read what's already been digitized is just not true anymore. There's so much stuff that's been digitized that hasn't been read and hasn't been analyzed and hasn't been studied that there is room for some of that work. And then I think that digital space opens up a lot of new possibilities for different types of projects, whether they're collaborative or whether they're um, border crossing trans-regional comparative projects. When you have archival records in different places, it's a lot of work to bring them together, even though in the past those records might've been connected or the people who um, created those records or retained those records might've had some relationship to each other in the past. Um, those scattered records now take a lot of work to piece together. Digitally, we can bring some of those collections back together. I think um, I just finished up a review of uh, Nandini Chatterjee's book, Negotiating Mobile Law, where I made the argument that some of the work that she's doing is really best enabled by digital projects like the one that she's been leading at Exeter, where these collections that physically remain in their um, original institutions or in the host countries can be brought together and can be looked at by scholars who have different domains of expertise, who are based at different institutions, who are maybe bringing different questions to these materials and can really bring new questions and new insights to the materials because they're now digitally accessible. I, I love this, uh, the kind of the reframing of the suffering in the archive as just another sign of privilege, right? <laughs> There's this whole system that allowed you to go and suffer in the archive, so. <laughs> yeah, if you if you haven't had lunch at the Dhaba outside NAI, the National <laughs> Archives of India, you can't call yourself a, a historian or something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, is... Um, some of the politics uh, that are, that are happening right now of people really considering uh, what belongs where in terms of museums uh, is that affecting your work in a positive way is there kind of a a, a, a 
global awareness raising about who owns what? I think certainly among the the community involved in Sawa, there are growing concerns about um, how the collections that are in these elite North American university libraries, how they came to be in those libraries, and then what having those collections housed in those libraries means about who can access them. Um, Because if scholars from from South Asia, from the country of origin of these collections can't access them, whether it's just visa restrictions, whether it's the cost of travel, whether it's that um, complicated question of how much time can you spend working with the collections and then what's the payoff in terms of the travel and the the accommodation expenses. People have been thinking about that question and have been thinking of Sawa as a solution to some of those histories of of extraction and collection building that happened in the past. Um, Sawa provides an opportunity for um, scholars and librarians at these institutions to in some ways give back or at least open the doors of their libraries to people who wouldn't otherwise have access to their contents, yeah. especially for content that's that's it, that's not in a copyright anymore, that's in the public domain. Um, they're really making efforts to make those public domain materials accessible to people. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fantastic and so important. Okay, so now we have a sense of what Sawa is and our listeners are excited and they want to get involved and they know of some uh some uh publication somewhere that they really want to see a digital copy of or they have some materials that they want to put in the art how do people get a hold of you and what are the steps what are some of the steps and tell us about the money as well oh yeah so right now sawa sawa is funded by um, institutional membership contributions so we have about 27 member institutions um, and we have a tiered membership structure so that institutions that are well resourced um, pay a higher membership rate every year than institutions that are less well-resourced. A lot of our member institutions from South Asia actually contribute, um, pay for their membership with their contributions to the collection. And then members are also participants in the working groups that really govern and drive Sawa's activities. So even though in my role as South Asia Digital Librarian, I do a lot of the work of of sending emails, of following up with projects, of tracking um, digitization projects across their various steps, um, the the intellectual effort and the you know drive behind this project really comes from the working groups. And so we have one uh, one dedicated to to funding that helps uh-huh. um, give Sawa some of that uh, the financial resources that it needs. Um, another dedicated to the content that's in Sawa. One dedicated to um, the infrastructure. So this is the question of uh, where do the materials live online? How do we make sure that people can read them? How do we make sure that the digital copies are readable? Um, and then another one um, dedicated to outreach. So this question of once it's in Sawa, then how do we tell people about Sawa? Right. Um, but right now we're working on um, uh, sort of the start of the new academic year, trying to get some new content flowing into our digitization pipelines. And one of the ways that people can contribute to Sawa is by suggesting titles that would be of interest for the collection. So right now we are soliciting new content suggestions through an online form. Um, There's a a tiny URL. So if you 
you do tinyurl.com slash Sawa suggestions, S-A-O-A-S-U-G-G-E-S-T-I-O-N-S. Um, you'll get to our online form and then you can suggest um, new content to be added to the collection. And we have a couple areas where we're building the collection. So women and gender is one of the areas. We're looking to expand our history of science, technology and medicine. Yeah. And there are a number of other areas, caste and social structure, um, social, political and economic history. A lot of big areas that could have a lot of different items, but those are some of the areas where we're trying to build the collection. And yeah, we get- I, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, we get suggestions from people who are involved in SAWA, but we'd really like to expand and get suggestions from, right. from scholars, from students, from people who are interested in particular sources and would like to um, would like to make those accessible to others as well. Yeah, so we added um, the uh, suggestion URL to our uh, Center for South Asia at Stanford newsletter um, that came out September 6th, uh, and it will be in again uh, on uh, Monday, which I guess will be September 12th, um, <laughs> just think about the dates, um, because there's a deadline, right, on the 15th. Yeah, we we suggest we receive suggestions on a rolling basis, um, but there's a meeting with the content curation working group coming up on September 20th. So suggestions that are received by September 15th will make it into that first round of discussion. Got it. OK, and we'll have um, kind of a leg up on ones that come in after that date. All right, people get your suggestions pipeline. in yes. we'll put the url in the in the notes as well but um if you can't make the september 15 deadline all is not lost because you accept things on a rolling basis yeah and if folks have questions about particular items that might be of interest and are wondering you know is this feasible is this possible is this the type of stuff that someone would be interested in they're always welcome to email me or to um, email our sawa email address which is saoa at crl.edu Okay, great. And now I do know that um, many people who have the privilege of research funds were not able to fully use those in the pandemic. Um, so is that one model where they perhaps contribute to some digitization cost? Is that something that you like and, and are able to process? Yeah, we've had a couple, um, we don't have a, a set infrastructure for this type of funding yet, but we've had a couple of instances in the past where institutions or individuals have had funds that they can contribute to the digitization of particular titles. Those titles still go through the same selection process as, as titles that SAWA is funding to digitize. Um, but since research value and since scholarly interest is one of our criteria for, for selection, if a scholar, um, expresses an interest in having a particular title digitized, especially if they either have that item already or know that their um, home institution has that item already, then we can usually move forward with the, the project and either um, work with them to make a contribution to SAWA for the digitization of that item or figure out another model that works to get these, um, to get items digitized, because that is a, it's a tricky nut to crack if you're a scholar and you'd like to have something digitized, but you don't have the infrastructure to make it open access. Right. It doesn't really make sense to pay to digitize things. Um, if you're just going to keep the files on your computer, it makes sense to make those accessible yeah. and to make those available. Yeah. And SAWA is one of the ways that, that folks can do that. Oh, it's amazing. Really fantastic work. And I'm so glad we're talking and, and we can spread the word. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your personal journey, um, you know, into this role. 
um, because you you didn't come through library sciences, right? You're a historian, and uh, and I've heard you speak about uh, your work um, on your research in Lucknow. So say a bit more about about yourself. Yeah, so you're right. I do have a background in history and South Asian studies. Um, and for a long time, I was working on a project that just came out as a book this summer. And that was on the history of, oh, thank you. That was on the history of uh, Islamic law and legal practice in British India. And one of the things that got me thinking about digital methods was some of the work that I did to on my own to collate and create a spreadsheet of um, fatwas, Islamic legal opinions, from one of the muftis who, who features in my book. And I spent time um, kind of going through his nine volume collection to create a spreadsheet for my own reference. And then I realized like, hey, if you have, um, if you have things cataloged digitally, if you have um, access to materials in a digital format, you can start to ask new questions about those materials. I mean, this is what digital humanities is doing. It's sort of saying, what can we, what sorts of new questions can we ask and answer once we have digital methods and once we have digital sources? And that's some of the work that I was doing. And it really got me thinking about what else would be possible if we had um, digitized sources. And so that got me started. Um, that I think piqued my initial curiosity in this project. I was also working, um, I have been working for the past couple of years on my own uh, digital archives project, which is called IPSOLA. It stands for the Indian Princely States Online Legal History Archive, because every good digital history project has to have an acronym, of course. Definitely. Uh, but the, the, the basis for that project was this very question of materials for the different princely states tend to be housed in different archives and repositories in South Asia. But there's a lot of research and a lot of information that could be gained from doing comparative work across the princely states. And so I wanted to create a repository that scholars could go to to say, I am interested in labor law and I want to know what it looks like in British India and the different presidencies and, and provinces of British India. And I also want to know what it looks like in the princely states. And I wanted them to be able to come to this online resource to do some of those questions. Um, that's kind of the the background work that I was doing when the opening for this position um, came up and I was like hey I'm already doing some of this work I'm really interested in these ideas of of digitally repatriating sources of um, using digital repositories to um, undo some of the barriers that that national borders create that prevent people from going to archives that might be in one nation when they belong to another nation or when they have the passport for another nation. I'm thinking here specifically of um, uh, some of the conversations that I've had in the classroom with students about uh, Indians who traveled to South Africa or East Africa um, throughout history, but especially in the colonial period, how do people who either end up living in one nation kind of access archives that might be in another place, or how can we look at how the uh, how experiences might've been similar or different within these different migrant experiences um, through digital archives since navigating, you know, a dozen different national archives would be an impossible task for anyone, but looking at an online database that allows them to compare and, and draw on sources from different places is a much more manageable task and helps us answer some of those questions. 
The other thing that uh, made me interested in moving in this direction, moving away from um, focusing solely on my, my own scholarship and teaching to doing more of this um, sort of service to the community and also project-based work was um, some of the work that I've been doing with the Conversations on South Asia series and realizing that um, there's a lot that goes into creating the intellectual life of scholars. There's a lot of administration. There's a lot of um, yes, programming. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of work that folks at the Centers for South Asia do mm -hmm. to make sure that the scholars who um, no, work on South Asia it. it's fine. <laughs> yeah, to give them a community, to give them um, space where they can talk with each other, where they can share their work. And so I was already doing some of that work with the conversations on South Asia series that I was doing, and really found that. Um, I had some, you know, some abilities and some interest in, in taking on some of that administrative work that other people find really daunting and, and find overwhelming in a lot of cases. And I wanted to use some of those skills and um, uh, experiences that I've been developing to, you know, build a work on a project and work on something that could create, um, provide a, a a set of resources for scholars and students and community members um, in a way that uh, let me do something new, but also draw on a lot of the, the skills and experiences that I had been developing. So a lot of the sources that are in Sawa are ones that I might have looked at as a historian. <laughs> and I think that helps me understand what people might be looking for in those sources or why they might be interested in them or what other sources they might want to have added to the collection. So it's really kind of a, a both and type move that I made. Is, um, is Ipsola part of Sawa then? Interestingly, they are coming together um, through, so Ipsola was funded by an American Institute of Indian Studies Digital uh -huh. India Learning Initiative grant yeah. And it's still a work in progress. Um, some of my work on Sawa has taken away from Ipsola, but Ipsola should be um, should be coming together in the next couple of months. But one of the things that I was able to do is to um, work with AAAS to allow me to use some of the funds from that grant to digitize new sources. So I picked out some relevant princely state legal history materials that Sawa is now working to digitize and they'll be part of both collections amazing amazing and thank you so much for sharing that um that kind of journey from you know going through your phd training and then um, um moving into this uh administrative role i think it's um it's a it's a personal topic that i love to talk about um that i think students really need to hear more about all the options available uh, to people that have had um, their kind of academic training in a PhD uh, and now you can do so many things and the tenure track is one of very very many very worthy options available and I think the academy can do much better being transparent about that um, it feels uh, it can be um, definitely hierarchical in terms of what is you know the best thing you can end up with um, and and students really are, or, or recent graduates really end up in very compromised positions, hoping for this carrot that's dangled at the end. And, and that often by the time you get to the end is not actually there or is, is very limited. And 
um, the the facilitating the facilitating role. Some you know that's how I like to think of it uh, is incredibly meaningful and important. So thank you for underlining that. I appreciate that. Yeah, one of the things that I did when I was um, sort of thinking about next steps was to take a step back and think about what I what I enjoyed and what I wanted to keep doing. Yes, what you enjoy. And then, yeah, and then think about um, maybe what I what I cared less about or those types of things. So one of the things that I wanted to do was to continue doing some of this work of, of facilitating, bringing people together. You can bring them together in a workshop or you can bring them together through um, uh talks and online events, or you can bring them together through creating an archive that they are invested in and that they contribute to and that they take away from and that they enjoy and they, they talk about. So there are a lot of ways to do that type of work, which is very much the intellectual, intellectually enriching work that one imagines as the work that the scholar is going to do but it comes in a lot of shapes and forms. Right. And this is this is one of those. I mean, I, I loved spending time in the archives. I love just like looking at sources and finding sources and then going out and saying, oh, I know somebody who's working on this topic and might be interested in this source and sharing those sources with folks. And that's what I do now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great. We're so the South Asia, the South Asia scholarly community. Uh, is so very fortunate to have you in this role. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, listeners, uh, I plan to drop a SAS pod um, every other week or so during the academic year. Uh, we're not quite there yet, so it may be a few more weeks as we move uh, into our academic calendar at Stanford. Uh, but follow us, follow us on Instagram, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on Twitter, and then you will always know. Oh, and follow the podcast itself. Uh, and then you will always know when a new episode drops. And if you enjoy listening to the SAS pod, do give us a rate and review because uh, we all need to work that algorithm, whether we like it or not. Uh, as always, many thanks to Simrat Mataru for post-production and Soham Shiva for creating the music. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.